Um, I did make a suggestion for those that um, are in the Facebook world, not all of us are, um, to bring along a pencil, preferably pen if you must, your Bible, we'll sort it out. Um, I think we're going to try and see if we can get some technology happening so that I can project. If not, it's not the end of the world. People have been preaching and listening to preaching for far longer than this sort of technology existed. We can do that. But I'm hoping that you will have something that you can make some notes with or underline in your Bible with, because that's what we want to try and do a little bit of today. I do want to start with, I think, what is the heart of Paul's message in this closing section of the book of Titus. So if you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Titus. Um, it's towards the end of your Bible. There's some letters that Paul wrote to some church leaders. Um, you'll get the first letter to Timothy, then the second letter to Timothy. And Titus, he was a clever bloke. He only needed one letter to get the message across. The letter of Titus, there's only a few chapters in it. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3. So in your Bible, have a look at Titus chapter 3. And I intend to zoom out a little bit as we go on in this message, but I want to, I want to start here, which I think is the very crux of Paul's argument. Now, it is an argument not the sort of argument that your kids have as to whether or not there's an invisible wall between them as they're traveling somewhere in the car, like my kids had recently, some of them at least, not all of them. Not that sort of argument, but a point. Paul has an argument, a point that he's wanting to make, and this letter is making that. Now, this will... Uh, this will, I'm going to disconnect and then reconnect, hey? That's what Tim's doing sign language at the back. Let's not worry about it. All right. Point at me and do sign language again. Great. All right. I'm going to see if this works. He's going to think about it. All right. Okay, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I know that recently I've been doing a lot of Christian Standard Version. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. If you have that on your digital device, you can read along. If you have a physical copy of it, that's great. If you've got something else, that's fine. Follow along as well. Uh, we're going to look at Titus chapter 3. And in particular, we're going to start looking at from verse... Um, I'm going to choose a different colour for a moment. We're going to look from about here, verse 4, and we're going to go down to the end of, in the English Standard Version, all of that is a single sentence, from verse 4 down to the end of verse 7. That's what we want to zoom in on. And I really want you to, to try and follow along in your Bible if you can and make some Marks or notes. And if you don't like writing in your Bible, that's fine. Some people don't like that. Then a, a, a notebook is fantastic or a, you, know, you can get dedicated sermon notebooks and things like that if you like. But just a sheet of paper, make some notes. Um, it helps your brain process information if your hand's moving at the same 
time. Uh, I don't want you to be put off by making notes, so it's not some type of special knowledge that you have to gain in some type of Bible college to do this. It really is just make some scribbles down that make some sort of sense to you. The truth that's in this sentence, I think, is fairly plainly evident. We're not going to sort of do some type of linguistic gymnastics to try and figure out something here. We're just going to read what does Paul say and try and figure out what does that mean, all right? And I think we can, we can do that, all right? Uh, so I want you to have your Bible open in front of you. I want you just to have one ear or half an ear tuned into what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm really more, more concerned with the fact that you have as much of your ears and as much as your heart tuned into what the Holy Spirit is going to be saying to us through his word. And before we do that, let's ask him to help us. I think that's a good place to start. So let's pray. Father, we um, acknowledge that you are God. We are your people. You have the words of eternal life. We want to listen. And so Holy Spirit, teach us this morning, we pray. We want to read the word of God. We want to hear what you have to say. And we're trusting that you will apply it to our hearts in a way that changes us and that we will be different people because of what you're saying. We want to glorify you in all these things. So help us, we pray. Amen. All right, first thing we're going to do is just read the actual verse. I'm going to read it to you in the English Standard Version. It's going to be up there if you need to follow it along or in your Bible. Uh, starting from Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal Life. That's God's word. It's also a very long and complex sentence. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Paul has a, a habit of doing that. Um, if he was doing an English literature class, his teacher would say, That's too complex, Paul. Break that down. Make that into a couple of sentences. So, what we're going to have to do today is try and follow what Paul means by this complex sentence, this long sentence that takes three verses or four verses in the ESV to try and capture. Now, we're going to do that by looking at some connecting words, okay? Things in that sentence that connect the ideas together. But before we get to that, there is just one single phrase which lays at the very heart of this sentence. Everything else in this sentence is kind of like a constellation of stars that move around the sun, okay? So you can think of this sentence as like a constellation of ideas that are all circulating around one key idea. And this key idea, fortunately for us, is not as complex as the rest of the sentence. It is, I'm going to highlight it for you in yellow, you can find it at the beginning of verse 5, and it is simply the three-word phrase which says, He saved us. Can you see it? All right, can you see it in your own Bible? Good. He saved us. Let's draw a, a box around that one. 
That means when I draw a box around something in the way that I mark up a Bible, it straight away calls my mind to go, that's really important. That's, that's highlighted. That's isolated as an idea. He saved us. A single phrase around which all the other ideas in this sentence all circulate around. They all hang off that one idea. We're going to get to the connection points in a moment and look at the way that the logic of that sentence works. But I don't want you to overlook those three words, that one single phrase. It is probably the most profound reality that we can utter since the beginning of mankind's history. In all this world and in all this universe, there is probably no more profound and greater phrase than those three words. Look at them. He, meaning God, we'll see that in the logic of the text in a moment, so let's just paraphrase that, Matt. God saved us. God saved us. I don't think there ever has been, nor will there ever be, a greater truth proclaimed than those three words. And it matters the order that they're in, even. I think sometimes those of us who, who know the salvation of God, sometimes we have sort of language, we, we talk about our salvation in far more passive terms. We, we might say, we were saved when, or I was saved when, but here when Paul writes it, there's no mistaking it, God saved us. We didn't just fall into salvation. We didn't just one day discover it and go, oh, salvation has happened to me. God saved us. God saved you. The rest of the sentence gives us all the necessary information that we're going to need to try and not misunderstand what is meant by he saved us. So let's look at the connection points. And I think that the connection points give us a bit of a roadmap to understanding all the other phrases that are in this sentence. So we're just going to go through without a lot of explanation and I'm going to highlight, I'm going to change colour so that we can... Um, see the connection points. I'm going to put all my connection points, I'm just going to underline them in red, all right? I'm going to go through and just highlight them, and then we'll come back and revisit what they're leading us through. And the first thing that we need to grasp as we try and look at the meaning here is to highlight all these connection points. Every sentence is made up of a bunch of phrases, all right? We're not getting into sort of... I know we're not at school yet. I'm not going to do a full... English class. I've even refrained from using the proper words to describe the connection points and who cares, all right? They're connection ideas and words and they're connecting ideas and phrases in our sentence to build up a picture of something in our understanding. We, we want to understand that central idea, he saved us or God saved us. So let's go through and just highlight the connecting words. The first one is at the very beginning in the ESV, and it's the word but. All right? One of my favorite words in the Bible, but. We were sinners, but God saved us, right? Praise God for the word but in the Bible. 
And when you're young, it's kind of funny. But is the first one that we want to look at, all right? But we're going to come back to that because it's going to sort of something that we're going to connect back to a little bit later. So let's just move on to the next one. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, that word but is our first connecting word. The next one is a pair of words that work together. All right. So right after our key phrase of he saved us that we boxed in in yellow, I want you to highlight the very next word in the ESV, which is not, not. And then there's another but. All right. And it's a little bit further on. But not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now, those two uh, connecting words, not and but, they work together as a pair. They're sort of partners in crime in this sentence, and they're designed to contrast two different things. Not this, but this, all right? And the way that that works in the language is to highlight the importance of one of those things. So we can say, you know, hey, I want you kids to go out and pick up the bikes. Not the green bike, but the red bike. Now, what's the, thing, what's the thing that we really want them to understand there? Which one do we want them to pick up? The red bike, right? Not the green bike, but the red bike. Okay? That's the way that not but works as a connecting point in this sentence. Let's move on. The next connecting point that we want to look at is the word by. Okay? So not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This connection point leads us forward by telling us how something was done, all right? How something is done. And then the last one that I want you to have a look at is the word, oh, not the second last one, is in verse 6, whom, all right? Bit of an interesting word. We don't use that word a lot in our daily language. Whom? Um, if you live in Downton Abbey, you use it all the time. But we don't. We live in Raymond Terrace. We never use whom. Not very much anyway. Okay? But whom in the English language tells us about who did something. All right? It tells us information about a person. And it directs us towards that individual. And so whom is an important one to come back and revisit. Now, the very last one that we're going to look at in this little passage is so that, at the beginning of verse 7. See that in your Bible? So that. So that is really basic. So that means so that. It tells us about the intention. It tells us about why that happened. Why did this happen? Well, it happened so that, okay, and it tells us about something that it intends to happen for us. So there are all the connection points. We've got but, we've got not but, then we've got by, then we've got whom, and then we've got so that. There are probably some other connection points in there if you want to be really grammatically correct, but we'll just sort of, they're the main ones that I want you to try and focus on. Let's try and put these connection points together to kind of frame out the sentence and help us to piece together what I, what I think is kind of like a puzzle, right? These are all the individual parts. We want to make sure that they're put together in the right way. And it builds up, I think, a glorious reality or a glorious picture of God's salvation 
towards us. So let's read the whole sentence again. Verse 4 down to verse 7. We'll highlight the connecting words as we go. But let's just take notice as to the phrases that they're connecting. So let's start back at the first green bracket on this screen. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared... He saved us, right? There's the big point. He saved us. But how did he save us, right? That's the question we might want to ask. How did he save us? Well, not... All right, here's our next connecting pair, remember? Not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. All right, so God saved us. God showed up in goodness. God's shown up in loving kindness. He has appeared into our lives. And the end result is he saved us. Praise God. How did he do it? Well, the first thing we understand, the first thing we need to grasp is that it wasn't because of works done by us. In righteousness. So all the right things, all the good things that we do, that we somehow think will weigh out the great cosmic scale of good and evil, all of those things that we pile onto our good scale and say, let's weigh these things up. I'm sure God's good and just. He will not let these things go to waste. These things have saved me. And God says, no. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Right? Because of his own mercy. Not even because of his own good works, which he's filled with righteousness, but it was mercy, Paul says. God looked at us, and he took mercy on us. God's salvation came that way. But we want to know more about that. Paul wants to tell us more about not by our righteousness, but because of his own mercy. So he adds by, there's the next connecting word, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just put a little clause in there by saying we could spend weeks trying to explore what does Paul mean by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But if we could try and summarize, I think what Paul is really trying to get at in some very strange language to our ears, it's a bit like when Jesus met with Nicodemus, remember? Nicodemus came to Jesus, had some very... You know, he thought pretty hard questions of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, hey, listen, unless you're born again, you can't be saved. Unless you, unless you know what it means to experience a new birth. Now, Nicodemus still had questions, right? How on earth, he said, can I re-enter my mother's womb? And Jesus was trying to get him to see. The Spirit of God comes in and does a work in your life, he says. The wind blows, you... You don't see it. You see the effects of it. The, the leaves blow. The dirt gets carried away. But you can't see the Spirit at work. But unless the Spirit does His work, 
You can't experience this new life. Paul is saying the Holy Spirit does a work in our life. He regenerates us. He renews us. We're new creatures because of him. That's how God saves people. By his mercy, by the work of the Spirit, making a new life in somebody. And then he tells us a bit more information about the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom, there's our whom word, Downton Abbey verse, whom, that's talking about the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Do you remember when Jesus was walking with his disciples and he said to them, listen, you guys are all sad because I started saying that I'm going to be going home to my father soon. And all the disciples got very distressed and sad. And Jesus said to them, the most bizarre thing that they could have heard, the most bizarre thing that I think I would have heard if I was in their shoes. He says, it is better for you that I go. How many of you have thought about your Christian life and your Christian walk and just thought, you know what, if only... If only I got to actually walk physically with Jesus and, and got to be able to talk to him about the things that are going on in my life and ask him the questions that I've got, it would have been easier for me to walk as a Christian if Jesus was physically right here with me. If I could camp with him, if I could sit beside the fire with him, if I could walk you know, up to um, Cessnock with him, if I could, well, it doesn't matter, if I could actually just be with him, that would have been better. And Jesus says, no, it isn't. You think, oh, come on, surely it would be better, right? Surely it would be a better thing for me as a Christian if I could physically walk my life with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it is better for you that I go. Why? Because when I go, I will send to you a comforter. I'll send someone who will be in you, not just with you. All right? And here, Paul's picking up on that idea. And he's saying... There's a, a spiritual work, there's a, a salvation that occurs when the Spirit renews and regenerates us. And this Holy Spirit is the very Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Jesus himself sends to us a comforter and more than a comforter, a, a comforter who works in us, who changes us, who, who strips parts of our life away that need to be stripped away. Those hard experiences of pruning and of discipline are still needed works of the Spirit in our life so that we are transformed and changed ever more, ever daily, so that we more and more look like Jesus, so that people will walk past us and go, hey, that guy reminds me of someone. That girl, she, she reminds me of someone. And I, we look more and more like our Father. We look more and more like our Saviour. And that's because the Spirit's at work in our life. And He's poured, us, poured Him out richly. The Spirit has been poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that, verse 7, so that. What's the intention of all of this, Paul says? What does, what does God What's the end game? What's God trying to do? Well, here we have it in verse 7. This is how he finishes his sentence. So that being justified, justified means being made right, right? So that being justified by his grace, and that's where we can draw a line. Let's draw a line in blue. 
justified by his grace. There's the word grace. Remember verse 5? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now we have this word mercy. According to mercy, according to grace, we can connect those two ideas. They're, They're related to each other. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God intends for us to live our life here and through eternity with a type of possession, a type of gift, a type of inheritance. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And that is according to the hope that we have in him. All right? So there's a little bit, a really basic way that we can mark up a sentence, mark up our Bibles. There's a single phrase. What's the big idea? Well, God saved us. That's the big idea. How did he do that? Well, let's try and find some connecting words and highlight those. Then let's just have a look at what those phrases are actually saying and we can build up a picture of what God has done. Now, it's true. We can just say, God saved us. And that's a glorious reality to be able to know and to say. But when we connect the rest of the sentence, we see that the salvation came at a particular time. We've skipped over the very first part in verse 4, but one of the other little connecting words that are in there is the word when. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared. You see, God saved us, but this verse tells us that that happened at a particular time and it happened in a particular way and it happened for a particular reason. And that grander, I think, fuller idea, that picture should create a reaction in us, a response of some sort. What response is suitable? What response is suitable to God saved us? In a particular time, in a particular way, and for a particular purpose, how should we respond? I think the first thing that comes to mind is worship, right? The first thing that we do when we hear that God saved us in a particular way, for a particular purpose, at a particular time, is our hearts should be drawn to the fact that what an awesome God God was merciful to me. God rescued me. God poured out his spirit on me. He's changing me. He saved me. So what do we do? We lift our hands. We bow our knees. We bow our heads. And we just say, praise be the name of the Lord. Praise God. He saved us. I think that's a right response. It's a good response. Interestingly enough, though, it's not the response that Paul tells us about in this passage. And so to finish with, what I want to do is just zoom out a little bit now. I want to go back and connect this sentence with what Paul connects it to. And what he connects it with may surprise you. It certainly surprised me. This sentence does not exist in isolation. 
It rests at the heart or the foundation of a larger point that Paul wants to get across. To do that and to see what that is, I want you to go back to the beginning of chapter 3. We read from verse 4, but now I want you to go back and find verse 1 in your Bible. I'll scroll up. And we're going to read from verses 1 down to verse 3 and then see how verse 4 connects to it. All right, you with me? Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Verse 3, for, and that's a connecting word, you could highlight that, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. That's how Paul connects the glorious reality of the gospel here. He connects the gospel, the truth of our salvation, to how we should live in this world. Yes, it involves worship, of course. We will worship for eternity. We will bow down before the Lamb and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we will do that for eternity. And we will never complain about how many verses we have to repeat. But here, Paul connects it to the way that we live in this world. The first thing he says is remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good work, to speak evil of no one. He's talking about the type of lifestyle that we live in this hostile world. And the very first reason he gives us for living that way is that, well, guess what? You were once that way. You were hostile. You were foolish. You were disobedient. You were led astray. You were slaves to your passions. You were passing your days in malice and envy. You were being hated by people. You were hating people. And so when we now, as Christians, those who have known the salvation of God, living this world, and we deal with people like that in the world, Paul says, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that you were just like that. So don't think that you're so high and mighty now. Don't think that you've got some sort of spiritual excellence that put you above the rest of the world to look down on them and say, oh, you poor, pathetic people. Paul says you were a poor and pathetic person. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Saviour appeared, he saved you. So how should that response, how should that reality govern the way that you think about the people that you engage with in this world? Paul says, first thing you can do, be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good work, to speak evil of no one. And he goes on, right? Now, I know that this is what he wants us to understand, because when we get to the end of verse 7, he returns to the same idea. Verse 8. 
This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul's interested in how we live out there. And he says that the way that God saved you is the fuel for how you engage with the world around you. So yes, salvation should lead us to worship. But the way God saved us, his kindness towards us, directly links us to living in the world in a particular way. We live at peace with those in authority over us. We are characterized by submission rather than rebellion. We're not argumentative. We should be noticeably more gentle than the people around us in this world. We should always be demonstrating a type of courtesy towards other people in our interactions. And and something inside of us goes, why? Right? They don't deserve that. And Paul says, that's exactly right. And neither did you. And that's how God treated you. So how should you treat them? Right? So Paul says, don't forget where you come from. We shouldn't treat others like they're less than us or inferior to us in some way because we weren't any different. We were foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to our passions. All those things that are described there. But when, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us. This is about God's kindness towards us, not because we deserved it, but precisely because we didn't. That's what mercy is. That forms the basis for why we should respond with mercy and kindness towards other people. So we reject the false gospel that says, well, I am a kind person to others and a good member of society, so I'm sure that God will do the right thing by me in the end. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news that we need to hear. God saw how hopeless and hostile I was and rather than treat me in kind, he looked at me with compassion. He was kind towards me. He saved me. And now that salvation, that particular type of salvation fuels a practical kindness from me towards others or it should. And it should do for you. So I've got one practical implication, but I'm going to give you three ways that you can express this one practical implication, and then we're done. All right, get ready. This is going to be profound. Sorry, I'm going to toot my own horn, but it really is a profound practical implication. You got it? Grab your pen, pencil, write a little heading. Practical implication to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through to 11. Just one practical implication. You ready to write it down? It's four words. Don't be a jerk. That's it. 
I know, profound. The practical implication of this passage is don't be a jerk. There are three unique ways that we can be jerks in this world as a Christian. First is this, don't be a political jerk. Don't be a political jerk. That's where Paul takes us to begin with. Our default position as Christians should be one of submission and compliance to rulers and authorities. Full stop. There isn't a sub-clause in there. It doesn't say, if you agree with them. It doesn't say, if they're good people. It doesn't say, if they represent your Christian interests. It just says, submit. We forget that when Paul wrote this to Titus, Christians lived in an era of Roman rule. A military regime who ruled its inhabitants by force and fear. There was no democratic right when Paul wrote this to Titus. There were no individual rights, let alone Christian rights. None of those things were upheld. We could better compare their situation when Paul wrote this to Titus to the secret churches that exist in North Korea today than we do our situation. And Paul writes to Titus and he says, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. There's a way that our gospel reality can even fuel how we engage politically in this world. And it means don't be a political jerk in your conversations, in the way that you're reacting and responding on social media. You're allowed to have ideas about whether something's right or wrong or thoughtful or, or helpful or not. That we're all allowed to do that, but we don't have to be jerks about it. We can be marked by a sense of submission and, and a way that the gospel has saved us towards the political scene around us. Here's the second way I said that you can not be a jerk in this world. Don't be a social jerk. I know it barely ever happens, but if you do happen to come across someone who holds a different opinion to the one that you hold about anything in this world, anything at all, apart from, I would say, the core gospel truths about the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came to love sinners like us, that Jesus died, that he rose again, that he's coming again. You're going to come across people who hold a different opinion about Christian things, about social things, about all sorts of things. Our default position should be gentleness, not aggression. Our default position should be to not look for an argument. Not be a troll and try and bait them and get them worked up because we think it's fun. Our default position should always be courtesy towards others. Whether you're speaking to that person or about that person. Paul says, don't speak evil of anyone. And he links it back to the gospel. Here's the third and the last thing and then we're close it down. Here's the last way that you cannot be a jerk. Don't be a spiritual jerk. Don't be a spiritual jerk. And the way that we do that is, I think, to make a regular habit of stopping to remember where we came from. 
stopping and remembering what sort of life you'd be living if it weren't for God's kindness towards you. And that produces a type of quiet humility in us that should mark our daily interactions with other people. Not that sort of Christian, pious type of attitude, well, I've got my life sorted out, I've got all my habits done, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing my supporty 40. You should do that, by the way. You will be a better Christian. Um, (laughs) You can do all of these things, and they can be good things, and yet we can be jerks about it. We can use them as ammunition to make people feel smaller or make ourselves look better. And that's missing the point altogether. So our number one practical implication from Titus chapter 3, don't be a jerk. God saved jerks and he still does. But it doesn't mean we need to keep living like one. We remember where we came from and we, we connect our gospel truth, our gospel reality that God saved us at a particular time when we most needed it and in a particular way and for a particular reason. And he says, listen, now let that gospel reality drive the way that you go out into the world. And live with people in such a way that it makes the truth of Jesus Glorious, Not because of how wonderful you are, but because everyone says, gee, that guy is really good at not being a jerk. <laughs> Politically, socially, spiritually, all those different ways that we can get this all messed up. Paul says, connect it back to the gospel. Remember how kind God was towards you. Not because of what you did, but all because of his mercy so that you would live with a type of hope for reality. So when you read your Bible next time, whether it's in Titus chapter 3 or anywhere, I hope that you will do it with a pencil in hand. Find the big idea, God saved us, or whatever it might be in that particular part of the Bible that you're reading, and then find the connecting words around it and start to build up the puzzle around that phrase and go, look at what God is doing. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he glorious? And then go out in the world and show people that. I'm going to pray. Lord, I asked you at the beginning, we asked you at the beginning, to help us. Your word isn't always crystal clear in the way that we read it. We, we bring our own ideas to it. And if I've done that today, then please forgive me and scrub those things from the recording. And from our minds, we don't want my words. We only want what you have to say. So teach us through your word, and you've done that today, I believe, Lord, and so thank you. Thank you that you saved us when we didn't deserve it. We still don't. So help us to live in such a way that reflects that gospel reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.